Hello and welcome to the MVR podcast, series two, episode 23. My name is Rachel Elmer. And I'm Peter Jacob, speaking from a cold office. (laughs) (laughs) You (laughs) ad-libbed. And today we're talking about when cases are tough. We're not talking about the weather. We're going to be talking about when cases are tough. (laughs) We always have a preamble before we press record. And um, as per usual, how did we get to this topic today, Peter? Well, it's um, it started really with uh, how I have been feeling in regard to a particular case, a particular family I've been working with, um, where it's things are difficult. Mm. You know, working with them with NVR for various reasons, not because of the parents really, but actually it's because of other factors, other agencies involved and so on. Things are simply difficult. And I've been thinking a lot about my own emotional response to that. Mm. Yeah. We were talking about people's caseloads, weren't we, just before we started, and and about how there is that risk of practitioners feeling overwhelmed with their caseload and sometimes when cases aren't going well. But we were talking earlier about how we tend not to have that experience so much because MVR supports families in a really deep, meaningful way. And we do, we do um, see change. Absolutely. And and I remember, I mean, going back quite a long time when the received wisdom was you should only have a, a very, you know, limited number of cases that in some shape or form deal with violence, abuse, and so mm-hmm. forth um, in your caseload, because otherwise you would get burned out, you would get vicariously traumatized, and so forth. And I've always felt, well, you using approaches and f- having at my disposal ways of working that are productive, you know, that sort of gives me that gives me a sense of agency, you know, I, I, I feel, you know, the psychological term for that is an internal locus of control. You know, I, I feel I can do things, you know, mm. it, it, and they're not just, the, the world isn't just happening to me. And so I've never felt burnt out. I've never felt that I'm suffering from vicarious traumatization. But when there is a case that is difficult, that that sense of agency may not be there. Mm. And that's what sort of set me off thinking a lot about, you know, how do I, how do I look after myself? How do I preserve my well-being in the face of a case where, you know, I, I really feel very much for the family members and, you know, there's a certain emotional investment in that. How do I, yeah, how, how do I look after myself and my responses and, and what what position do I need to take in order to feel good enough? I don't know, does that... Yeah, 
Yeah, it does. And I'm then thinking, yeah, how, how do you then? How do you? <laughs> how do you? I was going to ask you, how do you? Well, well all my faces go really well, so I never have that problem. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> You've just made me feel so much better, Rachel. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> okay, well, how do I? You know, I think all of the obvious, all of the obvious around peer supervision and regular supervision and reflection on, on our ethos principles practice efficacy um check it i think one of the key things is checking in with the family that if you know what let's define what's working well Mm. or let's define good outcomes you know may i may feel that the, the the outcomes aren't maybe quick enough or i might feel frustrated that you know, change isn't coming about, and you know, despite the coaching, despite the the, um, the regular sessions, but actually, families might feel that the, that things are improving just enough to shift change, and you know, checking in with them is is really important. And of course, that you know, particularly when your way of approaching such difficulties is more solution oriented. That is um, a very helpful thing for them and for us, you know, for us to feel, okay, you know, there are some things that we're doing that are really productive and we are on the right track with those things. We can also look at what may not be so productive and ditch that. But th- to get that reassurance, that's, is that what you're saying? That, that, yeah. That's some reassurance as well. Yeah, I, I had a session with the family this morning and they said, you know, things, have, there's been a, an improvement with a reduction of violent behaviour, and but also there hasn't. So they had what they described as some small wins and some losses. Yeah. And then used the language that said things aren't perfect. And so we kind of sat with that word for a bit. Yeah. yeah. But said, well, what does perfect look like? And, you know, the reality mm. of, of that. And, and of course, I knew they used that word loosely. We do. We use mm. terms loosely. Um, they're not, of course, they're not seeking perfection. And I don't even know what that means in real life. But they are experiencing a reduction of violence from their young person. So that's the win. But I think, I mean, I, I know that you, you know, I know that you know that they don't actually mean perfection literally when they say things are not perfect. But it does raise to my mind um, a lot of questions about what is success and what do we view as success? Yeah. And what do yeah. we view as failure and is not success and failure in certain ways, perhaps an unhelpful binary opposition, you know, in our way of, of approaching it. Because um, things are, you know, I, I often say to parents, you know, he hasn't turned a corner because there aren't any corners, you know. Mm. there There is no turning corners. There is no certain point at which something... Uh, so powerful happens that the difficulties just disappear. Um, it's an ongoing struggle. NVR, work with NVR is an ongoing struggle. And there's a certain arc to that struggle often. You know, there are certain stages that people move through. But I'm, I was sort of thinking, 
sometimes the kind of outcomes that the parents would wish for, that we would wish for, when they don't happen, you know, mm. um, what is success then? And I was sort of thinking about something that, that Chaim Omer said one time, and he said, uh, someone asked him whether you could do NVR with a certain kind of difficulty or diagnosed mm. order and so forth. And he said, how could you not resist? How could you want to be violent? So nonviolent resistance is always appropriate. Always. And I think there's a, an important principle embedded in that. You know, so there is something valuable about the resistance to harmful behavior because it's right. It's right to resist harmful behavior, even if it doesn't mean for, for a variety of reasons. You know, mm. a young person is, is deeply entrenched in a gang, in gang activity. It can be mm. very difficult uh, to have an influence on them when there's such powerful peer influence. And I also remember Chaim Omer talking about a case where, where there was gang involvement, and he saw the parents just every few months, but for many, many, many years. I mean, it was until, until the young man was in his late 20s and had sort of, or mid 20s, and had outgrown the risk and had outgrown his affiliation. Um, which is very different from the original 10 session plus telephone calls model, you know, Heim Omer's own 10 session model, you know. So there's something about, I think, it is valuable because it's right. I, I don't know. Does that make sense at all? Or am I? Yeah, totally. You know, it's, it's that kind of position that you choose to take and you stand against because going with it is wrong so it's just the complete opposite of what you said going with it yeah is morally so wrong yeah yeah you stand against it because morally that's so right to do yeah. naturally that is what you want to do i i just had a uh session with a foster carer who last time we spoke she'd spoken about her sense of failure that she's not doing enough There's something else i can and Sorry. was your, your phone commenting? Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> and we talked about that and we talked about the pressure she's putting herself under, you know? And today we, we spoke again and she said, oh, the, the, the pressure's gone because I asked her how the last session may have been useful to her. And she said, well, very useful because the pressure's gone. And, and, I said, well, how's that? You know, how come the pressure is gone? That self-inflicted pressure and the feeling of guilt. And she said, well, I've come to realize that I'm doing as best I can. Mm. And, 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 and she sort of said, well, responding to the child in these ways, that is what gives me the, 
the sense that I'm doing the best I can. And I think that's important for her, isn't it? And ultimately, she's my client, not the child. The child is a beneficiary, but she's my client. And if perhaps in other cases, actually in this case, the kids' behaviors are very good now, you know, but if if in other cases, um, the child's behavioral change lags behind, isn't there merit in the foster carer, in the parent, feeling better in and of themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that they're doing the best they can. Yeah. And their best is good enough. Yeah. 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 I think, um, yeah, we've, we've just finished some training um, yesterday and, it's interesting when we talk through the process of a sitting, the responses that some practitioners get that we receive from them, which is still very child centered and that there's some discomfort by practitioners, coaching parents to sit with children to resist harmful behaviors. Um, and a fear of, of the practitioner almost putting the parents in the lion's den, you know, or, uh, the discomfort of parent of practitioners coaching parents to sit with their, in, in some cases, violent, hostile, aggressive young people. And, and I still marvel at those responses and marvel at the, the alternative then. So the alternative is, to not resist. To go back to that, that moral, moral right and wrong. Yeah. Surely it's right to resist these harmful behaviours, whatever they may be. I, if I, as a parent, I, I felt I didn't do what I could have, or I did nothing. That would be, that would be really pro- problematic for me. But you may not do anything because you don't know what to do. Yeah. And we coach parents to explore what they can do in their efforts to resist. And so what we find are parents' responses when they resist is taking action, which then enables them to feel empowered and connected to their child, to themselves, to their partners, to their other children. And the knock-on effect by resisting is so much greater than not resisting. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know. Is it so ingrained in us? This is the only logical way to address harmful behaviour. Mm. You know, my colleague Jackie and I were saying that yesterday. Are we just so MVR now that we have we have no other insight <laughs> in terms of direct to address these behaviours? I, I guess we're, we're sort of going off topic a little bit, but... I just want to say that we can practice NVR as a broad church of ideas, can't we? Hmm. You know, as long as we uphold those underlying principles and find creative ways to use the key methods that parents use, both in, in reaching out to their child and reconnecting and in resisting harmful behavior, and in protecting their child, um, 
as long as we have that core, we can invite loads of different ideas and thoughts. But I think at the core is really this sense of doing what the parent doing what they can do with our support. And even if all we see at first is that it's good for the parent, that is very important. It's same, 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 same. Practitioner despondency when cases are tough and you don't feel things are shifting, moving, changing. Whereas parents are working hard to, with their young person, with their family, to bring about change and change isn't coming in spite of their best efforts and their hard work. And it's same, same. It's, you know that we come across cases that are tough and difficult and change is slower and, and we have to reach out into different corners to find our kind of our strengths to continue to support parents and parents equally have to find those external measures to help them keep going, to help them find their strength when, when home life is tough. And they're not seeing or witnessing the change that they want to see. And, and of course, in most of our cases, we see the change not just in the parental response to harmful mm -hmm. behavior, but we actually see harmful behavior declining. We see young people becoming happier. We see them, uh, uh, you know, thriving more or addressing their difficulties if there are internal emotional difficulties or social difficulties we see them cooperating more uh, so we see all that happening and actually at a very high rate and we see very few parents dropping out of our work so in a sense maybe we need to cultivate in ourselves that particular attitude of learning to live without appreciate without seeing immediate results in a certain area that parents need to have as well and if we can cultivate that in ourselves then we can probably help parents best to cultivate that in themselves yeah yeah, nice, nice summary, really. I don't know what else really to add to that other than, yeah, I think just just holding on to the essence of being, of introducing these principles and parents working with it and hoping for change and change might come. Yeah. In abundance or in drips. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. A couple of footnotes. I just wanted to mention to those who might be listening to this podcast that I'm stepping away from here now. It's so sad. <laughs> no longer sad. being a part of this podcast. Um, and I'm handing over to my lovely colleague, Sheila Desai. Which is lovely. Yes. Joe Lubienski, they're going to be stepping into these size sixes and hosting with Peter um, for the next series three um, in the new year. Um, aside to that, 
Um, we just want to remind those listeners that we have got an exciting workshop being rolled out next spring with Ellie Lebowitz, um, who's coming over from the US uh, to deliver the space model um, for two days in London and a further two days in Birmingham. Dates can be found on our website, partnershipprojectsuk.com. And in addition to that, there is an MVR association um, workshop stroke conference in spring 4th of March. Um, it will be online. So um, uh, please go um, on the MVRA website to find more information out about that. And Rachel, I know that you'd like to skim over this, but I just want to emphasize how privileged I feel to have been able to do this with you, how much fun I've had doing this with you, and how enriching it has been. It's been great. We've had a couple of um, boobs, haven't we? But uh, <laughs> we haven't completely made a hash of it. No, it's been lovely working with you too, Peter. Um, and I know that people listen to these podcasts very avidly, and I'm sure that they'll enjoy them hopefully just as much. We'll be, we'll be glad to hear the back of my voice <laughs> and my wit. Probably not, but... Yes, there are very worthy people stepping in your shoes. Yes, but the good news is Peter Jacob remains, so um, I'm sure that's that's what really counts. But anyway, so it is a final final farewell. It's a final goodbye from me. And a goodbye for this year. And um, happy holidays to all of you and a happy new year and see you again, or hear you again, or you will hear us again for the next series of the NBR. We're so seasoned at this. <laughs> <laughs> Have a Christmas. Bye. Bye.